be seated. I look forward to continuing to sing that one and learn that one uh, together, encouraging one another, indeed, in every season to praise uh, the Lord. I invite you to open with me now in your copies of God's Word to Galatians chapter 3. We have been studying the book of Galatians, uh, passage by passage, uh, for a couple of months now. We come now to chapter 3. Our text today will be verses 1 through 5, Galatians chapter 3. Verses 1 through 5. Brothers and sisters, let's now uh, hear God's word. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? We're going to end our reading right there at the end of uh, verse 5. Let's look again to the Lord uh, together. Lord, we... Love you, we love your word. Your word is truth. We need your word more than we need our daily bread. Uh, We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, our Redeemer, our only comfort in life and in death. Lord, our God in heaven, we ask that you would uh, bless us this, this morning as we open up your word cause our eyes to be set upon Jesus and to not look away. O Lord, strengthen us in those areas where we have given in to temptation to depart from the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us and draw us near once again to you that we would ever cleave to our Savior, to whom we are united by faith through the Spirit. Lord, our God in heaven, draw near to us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Uh, Proverbs 27 and verse 6 reminds us that faithful are the wounds of a friend. That's exactly what Paul was being uh, to these Galatian believers. Um, The opening words of this chapter would have probably taken them aback. Can you imagine sitting in that assembly, hearing the words of Uh, the Apostle Paul, in this letter that he's written to you, and we come now to chapter 3 and verse 1, and he immediately says to them there, Oh, foolish Galatians. The Revised English Bible translates it even, You stupid Galatians. Moffat's translation, Oh, senseless Galatians. J.B. Phillips' paraphrase, puts it this way, Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia. 
Paul is speaking to them straight in this passage. But these are faithful wounds of a friend. And what's Paul saying to them? He's saying to them, Oh, dear Galatians, you have stopped thinking. In your departure from the gospel, as you have forgotten the most fundamental truth of the Christian faith, that salvation is from beginning to end through Jesus Christ alone, in departing from that gospel, you have stopped thinking entirely. Paul has presented to them, again, reminded them of the gospel of that speaks of our justification. That justification is that act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all of our sins and accounts us righteous in His sight only for that righteousness of Christ that is imputed to us and received by faith alone. Our standing before God based on the perfect righteousness of Christ received only by faith. And that gospel also which speaks of our sanctification, the sanctification that is our progress in holiness which also is the work of God's free grace in us. Wherein He conforms us more and more into the image of His uh, dear Son. He enables us to say no to sin. Yes to righteousness. But that also is His work. It's all tied to Jesus Christ. It's a gospel. Both of our right standing before God and of our progress in holiness that is tied to Jesus Christ. And it is only as we have faith in Christ uh, that we uh, grow in, in this way. And it is this gospel uh, that the Galatians were uh, in danger of departing from. But he says not only to the Galatians, uh, but to all of us as well. If you are one who is in danger of departing from this gospel, he says to you, lovingly but firmly, oh foolish one, oh stupid one, oh senseless one, start thinking. Don't depart from this gospel. Now, in making this exhortation to them, uh, he, he, in this passage that is before us, you'll notice it gives to them a series of questions that are designed to get them thinking. Paul has defended the gospel so far, on the one hand, by defending his own credentials as an apostle. We saw that in chapter 1 and then in the early part of chapter 2. And then, at the end of chapter 2, he gives uh, an explanation of what this gospel is. Well, here at the beginning of chapter 3, he wants these Galatians to think and to think about their own experience. And as they do this, it will be an encouragement to them and to us not to depart from this gospel of grace. So there are five questions, really, ultimately. One, really, to each verse. So our division is very simple today. We're going to simply have five points each of the five verses are one of those points. And Paul is going to ask questions of them, first of all, about their vision in verse 1. Secondly, about their initiation in verse 2. Thirdly, about their completion in verse 3. Fourth, about their persecution in verse 4. And then lastly, about God's miraculous works in verse 5. So five questions about their vision 
their initiation, their completion, their persecution, and then God's miraculous works. Well, first of all, as he exhorts them not to depart from the gospel of grace, he exhorts them, first of all, by asking them a question concerning their vision. He says, verse 1, to these Galatians, who has bewitched you? And there it's really the word for kind of being put under a spell. Uh, it's a kind of, he says you're living in a kind of uh, trance. Uh, you don't see things rightly at all. And why is that? What, what is messed with their vision? What has really bewitched these uh, Galatians? Well, on the one hand, it's the false teachers who have bewitched them by teaching them lies. But even more than that, we would say it's Satan who has bewitched them, hasn't he? It's actually Erasmus, uh, uh, of all people, who puts this, and I think it's very good. He says that the devil is a bewitcher who deceives and ensnares the minds of people by his spells and delusions, which seem to shine with what is right and good, so that they will accept false doctrine in the place of sound teaching, false worship instead of true worship, wrong interpretation of words instead of true ones, false, just, false ways of justification for true ones. And so he is saying, oh, Corinthians, you are currently under a spell. You've been bewitched, bewitched by false teachers, bewitched by Satan himself. And indeed, what I sought to do, Paul says, when I was among you, was to place before your eyes the things which you should have seen with your mind's eye, which is namely this, it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. You'll notice that he says that in, in verse 3. Who has bewitched you? Why are you in this trance? Because it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. That language of being publicly portrayed kind of comes from the world of advertising. And uh, even in the ancient world, pieces of public information would have been announced by a, a sign in a prominent place where it would catch people's eyes. The same thing is done today, right? Giant billboard on the road. Okay, You drive by that billboard. Naturally, your eyes go to whatever it's on. It catches your attention. That's why advertisers use it. And so Paul says, my preaching was for you like a giant billboard, a billboard which showed forth Jesus Christ crucified. Christ crucified was the thing that I kept continually before your eyes. So again, of course, Paul didn't literally paint a billboard. But he's saying in his verbal proclamation, he so boldly, vividly, fervently, and continually presented this one great theme that it became like a billboard continually before the Galatian Christians. And it was a billboard of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Now, Paul essentially did the same thing, did he not, in his ministry in Corinth and really everywhere that he went. You remember those words and those uh, first chapter of, uh, or second chapter of 1 Corinthians and, and verse 2. He says, I decided to know nothing among you except what? Except Jesus Christ 
and Him crucified. And that's what he says here. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now this language of as portrayed as crucified there is actually a participle that's in the perfect tense. You don't need to know what that means other than to say that it's referring to a past action that has continued results. And so the past action, of course, was what happened on Calvary's cross 2,000 years ago. That at a certain moment in history, at a particular place, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was hung on a Roman cross. But Paul is saying that that's not for us as Christians just a matter of interesting history, but rather it is a historical event that has the utmost relevance, continued relevance to us uh, today. That the one, the Jesus Christ in whom we now believe, is the one who was crucified for us. And all of the benefits of His crucifixion continue to be effectual for needy sinners. That at every point in my life, what I need is this crucified Savior. The one who saved me by His death on the cross. That by His atoning death, He is the only and all-sufficient Savior. That you can be saved in no other way but by Him. And Paul is saying, I just came back again and again and again to this theme of Jesus Christ, the crucified one, for you. And so even though we absolutely proclaim Him as the resurrected Son of God, as the ascended Son of God, reigning and ruling from heaven, He, even as the one who is resurrected and ascended, is still the crucified one for us and for our sins. Now, I think this teaches us something very important about what one of the real marks of gospel preaching is. If we are to be gospel preachers like Paul, gospel preaching presents continually what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It holds up Christ crucified for sinners to believe in. That the cross is preached as a matter of the utmost relevance today. It holds up Jesus Christ crucified and encourages sinners and exhorts sinners and woos sinners to look to Jesus and find life in Him. So this means that for anyone who is a preacher, and here I'm preaching for a moment primarily to myself, but to anyone else here who preaches, to realize that this is one of the chief marks of gospel preaching. Paul could say, when I was among you and preached among you, it was like a billboard that was continually in front of your face of a crucified Messiah. But can I say it as well to all of you who are hearers of the word, that it is this kind of gospel ministry that you need in your souls. You need to be under a gospel ministry where week by week by week, you are having put before your eyes Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And you can't think that you can make it as a Christian by only hearing that occasionally. By only showing up to worship or being under the preaching of the Word of God 
every once in a while when it kind of strikes your fancy or fits into your schedule. Because, dear friends, if we keep our eyes, if we, if we have our eyes turned off of Jesus Christ crucified, then we've lost it all. That's what Paul's saying. We need to have our eyes fixed upon Him, this Savior. So at whatever point you are in your Christian life, can I say that that's what you need? You need fresh eyes to see this Savior. Don't get into some kind of trance that takes your eyes off of Him. Don't get taken up with other things as your chief pursuit. Rather, might it be to know Jesus as the crucified one that you are pursuing this one, to know Him in all of His saving sufficiency for your soul. So he asks them, first of all, these Galatian Christians, a question about their vision. Secondly, now, he asks them a question about their initiation. A question about their initiation. We see this in in verse 2. Here's the question. He says, did you receive this, or let me ask you only this, did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing, by the hearing of, uh, with faith? Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And so what he wants to, what he's doing now is he's asking the Galatians to think back to that moment when they first came to know Jesus Christ, when they were converted. And the question for them was, how did you receive the Holy Spirit at the time of your conversion? He says there are two alternatives. Either, first of all, that Holy Spirit came to you as a reward for your obedience. That's what the works of the law mean here. It refers to obeying the law's demands as a way of earning God's favor. And so he asks them, was the Spirit given to you as a prize for your obedience. Was that how you got the Spirit? Of course not. Not at all, right? So what's the second alternative? Well, the second alternative, he asks them, he says this, or was the Spirit a gift given to you freely from the moment that you first believed the gospel message? That's what that means when it says, Did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? That is, hearing the gospel message and responding in faith to what it said. Was that when you received the Holy Spirit? The answer is, yes. (laughs) Oh, yes. Blessedly, yes. That's when the Spirit so filled my life. And I just want to turn to you and say, Okay, this is not just talking about the Galatians. I want you for a moment to reflect on on your life. Is this not how it happened in your life, dear believer? That at some point in your past, you heard that gospel message. Maybe it was a friend who had become a Christian and who shared the gospel with you. Or maybe it was a, a parent That while you were a child growing up, a parent who modeled for you what it was to be a Christian shared with you the good news about Jesus Christ. Maybe it was that you read it in a book. Or perhaps you watched a sermon on, on TV or on the internet. 
Or perhaps it was even a preacher that you went and heard that preacher talk about the gospel and you heard the gospel message for the first time. Do you remember that moment? Do you remember when you were told about your sin and about Jesus who died for you and how you must believe in Him and how by God's grace you responded and received at that moment the free gift of eternal life in Jesus Christ and you respond in a way that says, yes, I do place all of my trust in this Jesus. He has, he has done it all. Oh, save me. Oh, save me, beautiful Savior. Come and cleanse me of all of my sins. Come and dwell in my heart. And He did it. He saved you at that moment. He saved you. Now my question for you is this. Now did the Holy Spirit have anything to do at all with all of that? And the answer is, oh, yes, absolutely, he did. Oh, yes, he did. It was that Holy Spirit, even, who opened your heart, who convicted you of the sin, who led your mind and your heart to faith in Jesus Christ. And it was that, through the work of that Spirit, then, that Christ came and dwelt in you. And he gave you something of the joy of having your sins forgiven and of knowing this, this glorious Savior and, and how did all of that happen? Did any of that happen because you were suddenly obedient and you did everything that you were supposed to do? No. It was all of grace. It was all through faith. That's how. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, from the moment of our, of our new birth, we receive the Spirit in its fullness. And it's ours from that moment we first believed in Jesus Christ. We have the Holy Spirit. What a precious truth this is. Let me just say at this moment, too, that this speaks, speaks against what is sometimes called a kind of second blessing theology. It's held by many Pentecostals. Uh, the idea that, that you believe and you get the Spirit later at some subsequent point in your, in your Christian Life, But, dear friends, that is just not what happens. <laughs> in, it's not what the Bible describes. The Bible describes that it's from the moment of our conversion. At the very beginning, when we receive new hearts, that's when we receive the, the Spirit in all of its fullness. Peter said on the day of Pentecost, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Or Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 13 and 14 make a similar point when it says that in Christ you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in Him, what happened at the moment that you heard and you believed? It says you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. To be a Christian means to have the Spirit in all the fullness of His, of His ministry in our lives. And that shouldn't surprise us at all because everything that we need is given to us by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul is saying to these uh, Galatian Christians, won't you remember with me for a moment that time when you were first converted? How did the Spirit ever come into your life? Was it not? through faith, and not by the works of the law. Thirdly now, he asks them a question, thirdly, about their completion. About their completion. 
This question really follows on from the previous one. If you look with me at verse 3 of our passage. Verse 3 asks this. Well, are you so foolish? Okay, there he goes again. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, so he says, it's beyond doubt that you began by the Spirit, filling your life by God's grace. It was God's supernatural work. And so, if it's the case that when you were first converted, the gospel was something that you received and believed, and you were not able to serve God in your own strength, he says to them, has anything now changed in your life? Is the Christian life to be completed in a different way than from how it began? And the answer is, no, it is not. You see, that's what these Judaizers were teaching in in Galatia. Uh, They were saying, okay, you begin with Jesus Christ, but then to, to really excel, to be perfect, well, then you need to be circumcised, and it's the law of Moses. And everything became about what they what they did, what they did, what they did. It was obedience to the law was now the main thing in their lives. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Your Christian life begins supernaturally. It was the work of God. And it is not your job to finish what God began. God finishes what He began. And He does so freely by His Holy Spirit to all who trust in Him. Philippians 1.6 is the key verse here. Now He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until that day of Jesus Christ. That's the good news. It's not that the Lord saves us and then it's up to us. It's that the Lord saves us and He finishes what He begins. Bill Riken puts it this way. He says that the way into the Christian life is the way on in the Christian life. That you didn't begin the Christian life by simply trying hard to be a good Christian. That's not how you first became a Christian, and that's not how you continue on in the Christian life either. It's not by our own efforts or by our own works. Rather, we live by faith in Jesus Christ. Now, the life of sanctification does involve a desire to be obedient to God's Word, but it is with the help of His Spirit, filled by His Spirit, looking to Jesus Christ. And so what this means is that that the sum and substance of our Christian life is the same after we've been a Christian for 10 years or 20 years or 50 years as it was on that first day that we were converted. What does it look like for us on on a daily basis? Well, it means that daily I see my own sin and the ways that I've fallen short of God's God's holy law and I repent of my sin and I trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior on on a daily basis. It means as well on a daily basis that I draw my assurance for salvation primarily from what Christ has done on the cross for my behalf and on the promise of God to complete what He has finished. I don't look, first of all, to my own work, 
but to Him. It means that on a daily basis, I'm seeking to live my life in response to the gospel of grace. I'm trying to live, I'm seeking to live a life that is joyful and fruitful to God's praise and glory because my salvation doesn't depend on my works, but rather it is the outworking of the Spirit's work in my life. It means as well that on a daily basis I am inspired by the hope of eternal life, a hope that is not based on my own merit, but that is based on Christ's powerful work. And so day by day, I draw the strength from, for Christian living from the Lord Jesus Himself and from the work of the Spirit that has been given to me freely. That's the shape of the Christian life. So let us not try to ourselves finish what God has begun, but rather to trust that God finishes what He has begun and to be continually looking to Him for daily strength and grace. But let's move on. The third question, or excuse me, fourth question that he asks concerns their persecution. Their persecution. We find this in verse 4. He goes on to say this. He says, um, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. Now there is a translation issue here. If you have an ESV, you'll notice a little... uh, Footnote, at this point, it says this could either be translated suffer or experience. Uh, The idea is, the word is is the word that means suffer. So he's either saying, did you suffer, that is, were you persecuted, did you undergo suffering? Or he's simply saying, did you experience many things, both pleasant and painful things? Uh, And again, I think either one could work. I think probably there is good reason to translate it, as the ESV here does, to suffer. And the reason is simply because that was primarily the experience of of the church. If this was written to uh, those in southern Asia Minor, the South Galatians, as we made the case earlier, uh, these were churches founded by Paul that had immediately undergone extraordinary suffering. Paul was often cast out of one city, He was at one point stoned and left for dead. And the early church experienced many of the same sufferings and afflictions that Apostle Paul experienced. It was a church born out of extraordinary affliction. And so Paul is saying to them, Oh dear Christians, you who have suffered so much for this gospel that I preached, was it all for nothing? After you suffered so much to be identified with Jesus Christ in this way, are you going to give up on Christ so easily? That's a good question for you, for you to ask yourself. The times when you're tempted to depart from the gospel or to leave the faith entirely. There are many of you who have suffered greatly for the cause of Jesus Christ. You have experienced rejection, many of you, by family members and friends for the sake of Christ. Some of you have turned your back on job promotions or career advancements because you knew that it would not be good for the spiritual health of your family. Many of you have given tens of thousands of dollars, and even more than that, uh, in uh, uh, to, to, to the work of the church and in 
uh, uh, tuition payments uh, to school or in forfeited income to educate your children in a manner consistent with your Christian convictions. Uh, You have been, many of you, willing to be maligned and misunderstood and falsely accused for the sake of Jesus Christ. Your whole lifestyle has been radically different. You have given so much up because you belong to Jesus Christ. The question that Paul posed to them and the question that he poses to you too, was all of that in vain? Was it for nothing? Are you now going to leave him? And Paul hopes for better things for these Galatians. That's why he says, well, if indeed it was in vain, he's hoping they will have a wake-up call, as it were, and and, uh, turn their back on this false teaching and continue to walk in the way of the gospel. And and can I exhort you uh, to do the same, that it might be true of all of your days from the time that you first believed until that time that one day you enter into glory, that you will still cleave to that same old true gospel of Jesus Christ and of His grace and love to you in Christ. Is that going to be so for you? He asks the question, did you suffer so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain. But now the fifth question that he asks drawn from their own experience, is this. It's a question concerning God's miraculous works. We find this in verse 5. It's a question that's very similar to the one that he asked back in verse 2. Except here, the focus is slightly different. It's on God's action here in supplying the Spirit for His people and the miracles that testify to His presence. He says these words, Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? In other words, did the Lord Himself send the Spirit because you were so obedient? Or Did He send it by His own grace to those who would believe the Gospel promise? And we find again that it's the second thing. Actually, many passages in the Old Testament speak of the sending of the Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 26 and 27 uh, say these words, that I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who gives the spirit? It is God. In response to their obedience? No. Or Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 is another uh, wonderful uh, gospel promise. Uh, And there in Ezekiel uh, 37 and verse uh, 14, he says these words. Let me get there. But they're similar words of of promise. And he says there that I will put my spirit within you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares uh, the Lord. 
So it is indeed the Lord's work. The gift of the Spirit uh, was given to them, not through their works. And similarly, the Spirit manifests Himself by many miracles. There were miracles that were accomplished uh, in that first century church in, uh, in Galatia. These miracles were a kind of confirming signs that the kingdom had come. Uh, there were evidences uh, that the world to come had broken into their lives through Jesus Christ. And he asked them again, how was it that these mighty miracles were performed, evidences of the Spirit's work in your midst? Was it again because of your obedience? And no, again, the answer is not at all. Dear friends, though we don't have miracles in the same way as was in the first century, we have the testimony of these miracles that were performed. And we still have God's gracious, powerful, supernatural working in our world today. How is it that so many lives have been transformed by the gospel of grace? How is it that such people have come to faith? How is it that nations have come to a knowledge of the gospel? How is it that the kingdom is being built? Can any other explanation be given than it is the powerful, supernatural working of God by His Spirit. You see, it is all of grace, dear friends. It is all of grace. And so to these Christians, these Galatian Christians who were in danger of leaving the gospel behind, he asks these questions, causing them to reflect on their own lives. And let me just close briefly today with just a a few points of application. And the first application is point of application is simply another exhortation to you in this way. It is, do not, can I exhort you, do not depart from this gospel of grace. Instead, think. Don't be foolish. Think. Think in the ways that Paul is encouraging you to think. You see, so often, when we drift in the Christian life, it's because of just that. It's a kind of drifting away. It's usually because we're, we're not thinking. We're just falling into certain habits of living. We're caught in certain sins that we are not escaping ourselves from. We are conforming ourselves just gradually to the standards of the world around us or to our peers that we see and we kind of drift away and as as you begin to drift away can we hear the apostle paul saying to us stop drifting stop and think for a moment think what god has done think about his grace and about the gospel and the impact that you've seen it have in your life and the life of others. Think about the abundance of His mercy and the promises that He makes in His Word and how all of these things are true. Stop for a moment and think. And I encourage you to do the same. Don't be foolish. Stop and think. Don't depart from this Gospel. But let me just make one more final application. And the application is simply this. And it is that the freeness of this gospel does indeed give us many reasons to praise the Lord. We sang that hymn earlier, that we would be those who who praise the Lord. 
praise the Lord with all of our lives. And dear friends, can I just say to you that, that this gospel message is absolutely true from beginning to end. That there is a freeness to the gospel. That it is not something that we earn. It's not something we secure by our own works. It's not something we have to, have to earn God's favor for. It is free from beginning to end. It is given to us freely in Jesus Christ. And Paul is finding so many different ways in the book of Galatians to make that same point over and over again. And we need to hear it over and over again. There is a glorious, amazing freeness to this gospel. All of the work has been done for you in Jesus Christ. Everything that you need for salvation and for life, it has been secured by our loving, gracious Savior. We have a completely sufficient Savior who is all that you need. And can I just say those words to you again, and can you believe it to be true? Might that give us reason fresh this week to praise the Lord. Lord, as I go through my day tomorrow, as I get up and I go to work and I go about my daily business, Lord, help me to remember just how free this gospel is and to praise you. To praise you as I interact with peers, as I face difficult situations, as I suffer under an illness or a cross-providence. Lord, help me to praise you nonetheless for the freeness of this glorious gospel. Might the Lord help us to do just that. Even as we come to the table today, why, why do we come to a table that has bread and wine on it? It's to remember, dear friends, again, that it has all been done for you by Jesus Christ. This table even is a kind of billboard in front of you that says, here is Christ and Him crucified for you. Take, receive by faith. All that Jesus is. Oh, would you live by faith in this Son of God who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for this just amazing, glorious gospel of free grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, we do pray that we would even today, hear and apply the arguments which have been made in your holy word, these pointed questions that have been asked of us. Lord, might it, as we reflect upon these things, remind us that this gospel is free, that it all has been done for us, that it is left to us to believe and to receive and to witness your work in our lives, Lord, we pray that you would work and cause us to cleave ever to our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, in whom all life is to be found. The Lord our God, bless us, especially as we come to the table now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen.